Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Pursuit of Love podcast, episode 50. I'm Darcy J. Smythe, your co-host with Steve Clayton. How's it going, Steve? What is up? And Matt Gall. How you doing, my man? Hello, all. Excellent. And today we are joined by the great man, Josh Deshay, all the way from... He's hanging out with us today from Dallas. So it's a pleasure to have him. You're usually from Austin, aren't you, Josh? Is that right? You usually come from Austin? Yeah, yeah. Born and raised in Austin, Texas. There we go. The best place in the entire world. It is. Actually, we were having this discussion with... Who were we talking to, Steve? Um, I can't remember who was saying, but it might have been Scott Ingram, how he was saying Austin is just... There's just people flooding to Austin at the moment. It is just becoming a a mix of people from all over America. A lot of people even from the West are starting to come now to Austin. I've been to Austin a couple of times. It is one of my favorite cities in the world, man. I, I, I just a, love it. There's actually a big Australian contingent in Austin too. So it's not just United mm-hmm. States. It's like the world. You know, Austin's real neat because, I mean, again, it's, it's, uh, it's pretty progressive. It's very green. Um, you have people from all cultures. You have tons of music. If you're a foodie, there's just tons of great food, so it's it's a neat place to be. What do you what do you think it is about Austin, Josh? So like that's all the that's all the things that are there, all the yeah, all the things you can do and all of that. I get and the live music scene and keep Austin weird and all of that. But here's the thing: mm-hmm. people would have used to say the same thing same thing about San Francisco and all like it's so cool, it's so weird, it's so different. But then San Francisco became San Francisco, and it yeah. just became San Francisco ish, you know. That nose up sort of thing. What do you yeah. think? What do you think would? Is there anything that would stop Austin becoming that? Do you think? Is, has it got a different edge to any other American city that other places don't have? Well, so you, everybody knows kind of the climate in the United States in general right now. Yes. Um, I would say the thing that would keep it from continuing to be, uh, if politicians would leave us alone, I think would be a, we'd be cool, right? I think mm-hmm. that's one thing that people across the world can agree with. Um, for the most part, politics just destroys things. Doesn't matter what side you're on. Austin Mm. is, so the way that Texas works, right? Texas is a very conservative state. It's also a lot of, there's a ton of business, but Austin tends to be, it's the middle. There's, it's really not a business Mecca. It's more Mm. of an arts Mecca, kind of like, kind of like San Francisco or Portland or Seattle, but it has the Texas vibe. And so what I mean by that is you go to a lot of different parts of the world and you've got nice people. Don't get me wrong. Y'all, y'all are fantastic. <laughs> Texas, there's a, there's a Southern hospitality to it, mm. especially in Austin where you have the progressive feelings, but you have the harken back to yesteryear in terms of yes, sir, no, sir, yes, ma'am, no, ma'am, how can I help you? Opening doors for people. Um, mm-hmm. you know, asking how you can help someone, there's a sense of community. And I think people don't realize it, but Austin actually isn't very big. I think the Austin area in general may be for a large city. It's only about a million people. Mm-hmm. So in Texas, it's the fourth largest city. Um, mm-hmm. so it, it still has that small town, small yeah. community feel, um, built around arts, built around nature, built around food. And so it, it's an amazing place. But yeah, I think j- just like anywhere right now in the United States, the one thing that could totally destroy that would be things becoming too political one way or the other. So yes. my, my, my yes. wish is that all those people would just stay out regardless and l- let us have good food, 
good people and good and good music and i think we'll be all right yeah yeah um one of our favorite (laughs) nights we ever had steve was in austin we actually we had landed what did we do we flew from melbourne to no brisbane to la Mm -hmm. and we have it had about what do we have like an eight hour layover in la or something like that i think it was six hours yeah and then from there we flew to austin and so we we had about 20 hours of broken sleep and a couple of flights and all of this. And we got to Austin around about, say, 4 or 5 p.m. And I said to Steve, I was like, mate, you are going to love this place. Because I'd been before. I was like, mate, you're going to love night. it. It's just the best. You, we're going to – we'll have a ball. So anyway, we went out that night uh, and we all we wanted to do was go out, have dinner, have a couple of drinks, and then we'd pass out at about 9 p.m., which would be perfect timing to right. start the next day. So we're like, man, this jet lag, we can, we can do this. So anyway, we get there, we eat dinner. We're almost falling asleep into our plates at dinner. Like we're, I don't know, eating tacos or something like that. <laughs> Where did Having a couple eat? of beers. Where did uh, we eat? went down to, is it, um, uh, not, not Bourbon Street, not 6th Street. Um, 4th Street? Cedar that might have been it. Yeah, the, um, all the food trucks and stuff like that. Yes. So yes. Congress. Congress. That's yeah, it. yeah, yeah. That's that it. was it. Yeah. So we were there, we're having a couple of tacos, all of this, having a couple of beers. Anyway, we somehow get this second wind at around about 9.30 p.m. And that's unfortunate because it's probably best we'd be going to bed now. But all of a sudden, we just felt this rush of energy where we're like, you know, first night overseas, let's go have a ball. We ended up staying out, I think it was, till about 4.30 a.m. Was that right, Steve? <laughs> oh, my gosh. Um, and then crashed back to sleep at, you know, 4.30 a.m. It was a Friday night. And I think it was the, the kickoff weekend for... ACL, so like, yeah, Austin, Austin City, City Limits. Limits. So there's plenty so of was stuff that going the on. First, was that the first night of the Sales Success Summit, or was that after it was, the first? It was day? two days away. Two it days, was two days away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So we flew and, in on the Friday, and I think the Sales Success Summit kicked off on the Monday. Did it kick off on the Monday? I thought it was I'm like a sure. Wednesday or something, wasn't it? Like midweek, and yeah. then it ended. I don't know. Either way, yeah, can't remember. But anyway, we woke up. I think it was the crookest I've ever been. It was the it was the single sickest moment of my entire life, and I don't think I'll ever top it. And if I ever do top it, it's going to be a sad existence because that was a rough day. Yeah. That was it was the it was I was a tough the, day. We were the most depleted you could possibly be in all areas of thirst, hunger, sleep deprivation, and anything else you and can. And jet imagine. lag. And jet lag. well, we ended yeah. up we ended up going to that Mexican restaurant at like four p.m. The next day, the Saturday. <laughs> yeah, for breakfast. For at breakfast. 4 PM. Yeah, and it was Did you just. Did you go to like Marty's or something? Uh, it was just some, I don't know, just some old place on a highway. It was the closest place we could walk to to salvage ourselves, really. <laughs> well, that, that, that tells me why then. So I think when I walked into the Sales Success Summit, actually, one of the first people I saw was you, Darcy, mm-hmm. when I came in. And I think you may have been upstairs with Jeff. Yeah. And you met at the very talk. Yeah, we were. And yeah. I we're think the- that I, I think that Jeff introduced me to you, and you were like, "Hey, yeah." <laughs> <laughs> I was in and a so bad maybe way. That tells me why it wasn't that you just were pissed off to see me. It was that. Uh, <laughs> no, he was. He was <laughs> not in a good. You, you shape. were just tired. I was uh, rough. I was. I rough. remember one point, Dars. You were like wrapped up in your little doona. Little gray, <laughs> your little gray head was popping out of the top. <laughs> 
<laughs> and uh, you were deciding whether you could even attend the Sales Success Summit. You're like, don't know if I can go, bro. I'm just, I'm just no good, mate. This like, thing we've flown all the way to America for. I don't know if I can attend it. <laughs> yeah, screw this. Whatever. Yeah. That yeah, was but- fun. But Josh, what, uh, we love to kick off the uh, kick off the podcast with a pretty vague question, but it does give us an insight into your world, which is, man, what have you been getting into recently? Oh, God. All right. So a couple things. Personally, we have four kids, by the way. Sorry, this chicken's getting in my teeth. Nice um, go for it, man. <laughs> hey, Josh we're is in America while he's doing the podcast, big. so it's great. Yeah, that's a yeah, big cut, go. man. Uh, it's a big cut. Okay, so... Four kids, 16, 14, 6, and 4. The, the oldest three are girls. The 14-year-old is now doing volleyball in school. Oh, you look my like gosh. A man who You look like a man who would have a daughter who plays volleyball. Dude, it's, I don't know what that means. I guess that's a good thing. Huh? <laughs> you just look like a you know, family man that would, all the kids would play like good sports, oh, you know? Oh, my God. Well, no, no, no. Well, I'll have to tell you about that. No, that's not a... <laughs> But uh, no, so Michaela, she's 14. She's doing volleyball. I I don't know what it's like in Australia when it comes to sports with kids, but these people are insane, guys. I mean, there's like practices from like 7 a.m. to like 11, and then they have off, and then they're practice again from 1 to like 4, and then they have these like the, the practices are super intense, right? So they're all in there, and it's almost like the army. You have this coach, like, berating these 14-year-olds, and these 14-year-olds are, like, crying because they can't get it. And, oh, my gosh. And I'm just getting livid, and I'm sitting up there like, Ugh, I'm going to totally tell this coach off. And my daughter comes off the court and tears in her eyes, and I'm like, sweetheart, are you okay? She's like, yes, it's the best day ever. And I'm like, oh my God, one, I have no clue about girls. How the hell do you get that out of that? And then two, I I can't, emotionally, I can't handle this much longer. So I'm just not going to come to these practices anymore. So uh, from a personal side, that's what we're dealing with. Obviously the, the COVID stuff where people are going to, you know, at school from home and all these kind of things happening, but that's what's going on there from a, from a business side you know, the sales rebellion is blowing up Mm. and I'm so blessed to be part of this thing. And, you know, Dale and I talked before COVID actually started and it was the beginning of the year. And I was, I was actually ramping down my executive and business coaching. And I had told Dale, I don't want to do this anymore. It's boring. The, uh, the clients that I have are just they're they're I I don't like them. Mm. (laughs) And, Mm. and so no matter how much I continue to up my prices, they continue to stay. So I'm just going to quit and I'm going to come over and do this. And so what I did was in November, I I, I called all my clients individually, gave them the rest of the curriculum that I was doing and fired them and said, look, you don't have to pay anymore. I'll give you the entire curriculum over. I I can't do this anymore. If you need me, I'm here. No more clients, no more coaching. Um, And I went to Dale at that point, probably end of January and said, dude, I'm, every time I post about sales, every time I go have a talk about sales, I get goosebumps hmm. because I love it. And hmm. I lo- to me, like at the very core of my being, I believe that every single person walking the face of the earth is a living, breathing salesperson in one way or another, and they just don't realize it. And when hmm. I can talk about sales and teach people about sales and train, it's basically like life coaching to me. 
Mm. And so he goes, well, you need to come over and start doing stuff. Right. And so then COVID hit. Boom. And I said, all right, so let's just start this thing up. And ever since it's just been blowing and going. And uh, so what's going on in business world, man, it's sales are brilliant. And it's it's amazing what's happening. And you, you guys know Dale and Chris and everybody else over there. We are like we're thriving. God is blessing us in ways that we haven't seen where other people are struggling mightily. And so to me, that's what's going on. And to say that it's a full life right now would be uh, an understatement. Mm, good on you, man. And what yeah. is it, do you think attracts you to the sales rebellion as a movement in itself? So when I first started doing sales, I'm, I've been in sales for, I'm 44 now. My first real sales job, I was 20, working at Best Buy Electronics in Austin, Texas, selling VCRs and TVs. <laughs> and so anybody listening to the podcast, if you don't know what a VCR is, oh my gosh, it was the worst thing ever. But I sold the crap out of those things. <laughs> and, and so I had, this, I had this guy and he was a sales manager. And we were, we were gauged, obviously, on how much we sold. But we were, we were, they really graded us on how we got to the sales. So it was totally backward. The metrics, and this will tell you what I mean by in terms of sales rebellion and what's happening and what I think is great. He comes to me one day and he goes, Josh, you're not doing what I need you to do. And he put me on a pip. First of all, I'm 20 years old working at Best Buy making like five and a half bucks an hour. I'm like, screw you, whatever. But I said, what are you talking about? I've like sold three times as much as everybody else here. And he said, yeah, but the problem is it's luck because you're wasting time. If you could, you're, you're like spending like 15, 20 minutes with everyone. Imagine if you only spent three or four, how many more you could sell. And I looked at him with a tinge of arrogance because I'm 20 at that point and said, mm. oh, you know, everything at 20, you're sold. Yeah. I was freaking mastermind at 20. Um, <laughs> I looked at him and said, the thing is, the re- and, and I should have gone to hell after saying this. It wasn't nice, but there was some truth to it. I said, yeah, but you're 32 and I'm selling three times as much as you. I'm 20, don't know what the hell I'm doing. So maybe you should do what I'm doing and you would be even higher in your position and maybe you'd be doing more than telling a 20-year-old what to do. And I got in big trouble for it, but <laughs> I was a, I, I'm sorry, I was, a, I was an asshole, what can I say? But the point of the, on me saying that is ever since then, I realized something really important. When I said that everybody is a salesperson at heart, everybody, we're relational creatures. Mm. We have this desire, intense desire to be around people and to make a difference. Even the, the nastiest people on earth need people around them that pat them on the back. They need people around them that, that make them feel useful. Everyone on earth needs to feel that feeling. Mm-hmm. And re- what we are teaching at the Sales Rebellion is what I learned back when I was you know, 24 years ago, which was I can sell to people. I can make a difference in someone's life, even selling something like a VCR, a Sony VCR that cost a hundred bucks because I can get to know who they are, get to know what they care about, get to know what their family does, get to know what they do for a living, all while selling something that has nothing to do with any of it. But they want to tell me because they desperately want a relationship with someone. And so for me with the sales rebellion, what we're really doing long term is, yeah, we're building this organization 
But in the end, it's, it's a people business. We're making an impact in people's lives, not just in how much they sell or how much commission or how much money they make, but people are going home and having better relationships with their spouse. They're going home and they're treating their kids better. They're going home and they're giving calls to their mom or dad who they haven't talked to in five years because we're teaching people the value of legacy and teaching mm-hmm. people the value of communication and relationship and empathy and the idea that we right wrongs from the past and the idea that we, in the end, have complete determination on how our legacy is viewed after we're gone. That's not a normal sales training organization. That's, mm. if anything, that's a, a life-changing organization that works on people's lives and sales is just that nice little offshoot. So that's what we're doing, man. And that's what has me so stoked every single day I go out there. That it's not just talking to, to some guy who sells IT to help him sell more. It's teaching him the basis for why he's doing what he's doing and what succeeding in sales will do for his life, his family, and his future legacy. That's, that's exciting. That sounds beautiful, Josh. I have a question. Yeah. Uh, you'd be, you're a smart man. You're, you would understand that if you only ever see the positive in something, you're half blind. Yes. Um, and, you know, if you only ever see the positive in something, you'll just choose to believe you'll never get hit by a car coming from the left. Uh, and then so you walk out on the road without looking left and you get hit by a car, which isn't all that safe. That would so, be fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so curious what, and I'll, I'll just ask like a pretty abrupt question about it, if you don't mind. Mm, it's not so good. much about the sales rebellion itself. I love what Dale and Jeff are up to. Um, but you personally, what do you dislike about it? About the sales rebellion or sales yeah, in general? No, nah, the sa- like, oh, well, not the sales rebellion, um, but the the movement per se that the sales rebellion represents. Because the sales rebellion isn't isn't creating that movement. That movement is happening no matter what. Right. It's just that people are jumping on the train and the vehicle that they're jumping on it with happens to be this thing called the sales rebellion. That movement you're talking about is a social movement that's occurring yes. no matter what. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. That movement itself is essentially moving away from traditional sales, traditional get the number, hit the quota, you're just a number, etc. Yeah. Okay. When it comes to the sales rebellion and the movement that it represents, what's another way of asking about it is what's difficult about all that for you? What do you what do you mm-hmm. dislike about it? What do you resist against about it? I, I no, I'll tell you what I don't like about it. I don't mind. What I don't like is the fact that we have to do it. Mm. Doesn't it, it mm. to me, if I'm gonna look on that side, and by the way, you're right to say that I'm Typically speaking, I, I'm a ha- glass half full kind of guy, right? I mean, yeah, yeah, you yeah. have to be going through some of the stuff that I have. I hate the fact that we have to teach people this. Yeah, that it even to needs me, to be an educational thing to begin with. Man, I mean, look at the world today. Look at what we see on social media. I can't mm. even turn on, I can't even, I don't even want to open Twitter or Facebook because all I mm. see are people like bitching and moaning at each other, mm. fighting you know, people cursing each other, people, you know, throwing derogatory terms around, camps coming to, you know, pulling apart and it's me against you. And, you know, I'm, I'm going to do what's right for me and my family. I don't give a crap about you. We live in a culture that's so contentious. Mm. I mean, more content. And I'm, again, 44. You know, I was alive during 
you know, again, Al Gore and <laughs> George W. Bush or, you know, that election or the, the Gulf Wars or any of those things where it was really bad. It's never been this bad in my lifetime. Mm. And so I hate the fact that this is not something that is inherent in people today. I hate the fact that I have to be the person to come in and say, stop this effing madness. What are you doing? You are destroying this legacy that your kids are going to remember about you. You're making a legacy that is negative. And what is that going to do for your kids and for your grandkids and your great-grandkids? They're going to look back on you and say, you were wrong. That's what I hate about all this right now. That's, that's actually what I hate about what I do, that we have to do it. And I think on a greater level than if we start talking about salespeople, the reason that we have to come in as the sales rebellion and teach people different ways to do things is that the sales business, sales training, sales leadership, salespeople in the past have done a really shitty job. Excuse my French. I don't know if I can say that. Yeah, I got from that. I've done a shitty, we've done a shitty job of being real and good and honest and open and transparent with our customers. That's why when you walk into a place, think about in the United States, we have chambers of commerce in these different cities. The chamber of commerce is a conglomeration of different businesses that come together and network. If I go to a chamber of commerce and I say I'm a salesperson, people for the most part like back away. It's a bad word. That Mm. sucks. The only reason it's a bad word is that so many salespeople have been shitty in their jobs and they've lied cheated and stolen to get what they wanted up until this point. That's the only reason that the sales rebellion is needed right now, right? I mean, if salespeople for the last 20 years have been treating people fairly, honestly, open, they had given them what they needed instead of trying to convince them to buy something they didn't need. Mm. If we had been doing all that as a culture and as an industry in general, there wouldn't be a need for the sales. We wouldn't need to rebel against anything. And so to me, I look at those things and that's what pisses me off. Do you think Mm. that's a reflection of salespeople and the sales industry at large? Or do you think that's a reflection of the system that they exist within that simply allows it? Like people are, people are going to, people are going to, to, um, to take the path of least resistance, no matter what. And the path of least resistance is make more money. Life will be easier. Right, so the path of least resistance is ultimately just make a sale. Like you, the the lowest point you can go down to is make a sale to someone who doesn't need it. You'll get paid. They'll get a product they kind of don't need, and blah, 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 blah. and it's kind of like blah, right? But ultimately, it's the path of least resistance that doesn't ultimately hurt too many people right there in the moment. This is what salespeople would explain it as. So I would suggest, and I, I'm. I'm backing you, Josh. I reckon it's 100% correct. Like something needs to change, absolutely. But my concern would be working with salespeople without changing the system that they exist within will simply be a futile endeavor at the end of the day. You know, I think um, I completely see where you're coming from. I'm going to go back to something I preach a lot, though. Mm-hmm. And I'll use me as an example. I've screwed up in the past. I've had bad moments. You know, one thing I've never done, I've never lied to get a sale. Ever. At my detriment many times. And and again, I'm not a perfect person. I've screwed up many times in my personal life and professional life, but I've never lied to get a deal. I've never tricked someone into buying. 
I've never gone out of my way to overcome objections that were real in order to get them to sign on the dotted line. To me, that's about personal responsibility. That would be like right now blaming me going out. I, I could go right because of all the turmoil in the United States politically. I'm going to go and knock out windows in this hotel. It's not my fault. It's the system, right? It's, mm. it's pissed me off so much. And so I would say, yes, the system is an issue and it needs to be fixed. And that's what we're working on. But at mm. the heart of every system is a heart. Mm -hmm. At the center of every system, what makes it run? The system doesn't go by itself. The system mm -hmm. is just the vehicle. A vehicle, until we have autonomous cars, right? The, the, <laughs> the vehicle doesn't move without someone turning the engine on. And so to me, it starts with salespeople standing up, putting their arms up, and making an oath to take personal responsibility for the part they play in all of this. Because think about it this way. If you go into uh, a crooked organization, a crooked sales organization, and they want you to lie, cheat, and steal to get money, does the system make the, the person lie? Or does that person conform to the system eliminate personal responsibility, and then lie. To mm. me, it starts with personal responsibility on the sales side. What yeah. we know about it is this, right? That as, if you're a good salesperson, you can get a job anywhere. Mm. You can get I'm a job saying. anywhere. I mean, mm. maybe you don't make as much money somewhere, but you will never go without a job if you can be a salesperson. What we have to do as salespeople is stand up and say, my integrity, my honesty, my heart, my legacy will be negatively impacted if I do these things that the organization, this corrupt system wants me to do. And until we take personal responsibility for our legacies as individuals, the, the corrupt system will continue being corrupt. We have a chance to change that corrupt system mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. if enough of us stand up and say, screw you, I'm not doing that. The system has to change because it needs us. Yeah. So the system's so, uh, a reflection of the people. If you can change the people, so you're coming from the the bottom up approach to it. You believe that be, can? Yeah, because uh, think think of it this way: if the system decided to be altruistic, good, giving, caring, um, integrity driven, but the individual didn't want to be, you would still mm. have corrupted corrupted sales processes. If mm. an organization or the system decided to to be corrupt, yet the individual salesperson said, I'm not going to do it that way. You could still have thriving sales. Yes, yes. So yes. to me, it starts with the heart and the person. Mm. And then the person can impact change on the larger organization. I think what we're tapping into, Steve, I think you'll love this. What we're tapping into here, Josh, is a moral argument that, that sits at the core of the way the Western world works and the Western economy works, which is this. For example, um, I let's just say I love sales training. I love doing sales training. And an ideal world to me would be the world where everyone is trained up in sales um, to the best of their ability. But the problem with that is if, if everyone's trained up to sales to the best of their ability, I don't have a job anymore. Same thing as like, say, let's just say Big Pharma. Big Pharma wants, gives you pills so that you're not sick anymore. But if you're not sick anymore, they can't sell the pills anymore. And so it just becomes like this, is it the system feeding the people or do the people need to be crooked so that there's something to fix so that we have something to spend money on? Like it just becomes this big hamster wheel or infinity loop that 
that I don't know whether is right or wrong or better or worse yeah. or whatever, but I know that we technologically advance massively because of it. We do move forward massively because of it. Um, and if that means selling things to people that they don't need, uh, does it move us forward? Does it move the needle forward across time? You know, if that's involved in it, and if so, is that a good thing? I don't know. There's a number of questions that come up with it. And I don't think there's an answer, but at the core of it is is a is a is a is a question of morals. You know what's interesting in everything about doing that. Western economy. So by the way, you're completely right about our industry in general. Does that make sense or is that just a, a ramble? No, no, no. Went, it, it no, makes complete sense. Makes and and sense, here's yeah. where here's what I love about what we're doing at the Sales Rebellion. And again, I say this and it sounds like we're perfect. We're not, right? We're all humans. Human beings are in, in I don't believe that every human being is is inherently good, by the way, because we can see mm. that. If we don't have laws, what happens, right? So, <laughs> I mean, let's be real. If we don't have laws, I'm, I'm, I'm taking stuff, right? Or most people will, will fall into that. But I, most sales training organizations, to your point, by the way, employ people who haven't sold in 10, 15 years. Mm. So to them, you're right, in my opinion, if you train everybody in the world at that point, what what job do you have? Mm. One of the things I love about what we do at the Sales Rebellion is you're talking about people that have actually been sales leaders. Now, granted, as we continue to grow, grow and, 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 and morph and change and, and prosper over the next 10, 15 years, the people that are coaches and trainers now like myself or Del Dupree, we are that much further removed from actually being in the field selling. So part of that, you know, may end up taking care of itself, but the organization is thriving because we hire people who know how to sell, to train other people how to sell. Mm. And we're not afraid to do what other people are afraid to do. Go to any training or coaching system out there and they will, they would never make cold calls with the people they're training ever mm. because they don't want to show that they suck at cold calls just like everybody else. Because they're, they're putting up this persona of being perfect and they are the light at the end of the tunnel that these people need. Instead of saying, you know what, I'm probably going to fail here and let's talk about why afterward. Let's talk about what we could have done better with this and let's use this as a training moment for us all to get better. But sales training hasn't been that way. Sales training, for the most part, over the years, it's been bullcrap. It's been regurgitated mess. It's the mm. same stuff over and over again. Okay, I'm going to teach you how to make hundreds of cold calls. I'm going to teach you how to overcome objections, regardless of whether or not they're real objections. I'm going to teach you how to find buying signals and trick someone into signing on the dotted line. And they wouldn't use those terms, but in the end, we all know that's what people are taught. I'm going to teach mm. you how to do volume, teach you how to overcome objections, teach you how to get someone to sign on the dotted line. You don't mm. teach people habits. You don't teach people to build legacy. You don't teach people, you know, how to attract attention and to give experiences to people who are calling in order to make that call better. Nothing is new anymore. And so that's one of the reasons, by the way, we've kind of been thriving is that we're injecting into the process what we are currently using to sell. Yeah, and I think that's the big difference. So again, rounding back to your point, if you cure all disease, do you need pharma anymore? Same thing here. If, if everybody ends up being a, a rebellious seller and they become great, we still have jobs because we all know how to sell. 
Mm. The other organizations who have people who have written books who sold 35 years ago when Zig Ziglar was 32 <laughs> years old, they haven't sold in 40 years. So those people are out of a job and they're on the welfare line. So I think um, that's, you're right. And I think that's the difference I think that we're making and that we're bringing to the table. Nice. Love it. Thoughts, Steve? Yeah, we're kind of awfully quiet today, Stevie boy. Doing lots of awfully thinking. Quiet. Yeah. Just trying to connect. Well, he's kicking back on that couch. So, yeah, I'm you enjoying know. it. Yeah. Trying to connect a couple of dots. I think going back to like the the morality side of things, I think that that is the most central part. Like, because I think regardless of industry, I think you've got more corrupt industries than other, others for sure. Um, but I think at the center of it is the human heart, and the human heart gets what it wants. And so it just so happens that sales is is very much aligned to marketing and marketing is get whatever you want at all costs. Mm. And it just flows on from from that. But I think I think that's probably what you're tapping into, Josh, is that the the sales rebellion seems to be more centered around community and the joining of community, the joining of people, even more so than perhaps the tactics that you're you're training and teaching. I think where it can go wrong, though, is it also, you know, sometimes you swing too far into the moral, the morality side of things without going, yeah, well, how do you be a profitable business as well? And so there's this so much nuance to it. It's there's so much gray. Mm. I don't, I don't. It's like it's it's almost an impossible problem to solve. You know, yes, without diff. Without well, diff, yeah, giving us yeah. some model to work through. The diff, if you listen to the episode, <laughs> mate, diff. can you just like send us in a little yeah, comment yeah. on cool. what we're trying to say? Where, um, where do you place the responsibility of on the consumer? That's because what I was thinking. Talk, question. We talk about like a lot this morality of like every salesperson has to be moral in the way that they they sell and they market and all that. But what if the the market was just smarter to know that they weren't like. I'm being tricked into this. I'm too well, gullible. But I, that's, that's a great question. That's what I believe, man. That's where I was kind of thinking. I was like, I reckon salespeople give themselves way too much credit. Like, I yeah. think, I think, like, are you really, are you really that good that you can take someone that doesn't want anything that you're selling and then somehow turn them around to buying what you want? Like, unless it's, I, don't, I just don't see those salespeople in the world that are just full mm. of complete lies, and that's like. If they're smart enough to convince someone to buy something that they actually don't need, surely they're smart enough to also figure out that that's just not going to be a good strategy long term. Like, yeah, yeah. nice. Part, part of me, I'm just like, where is the evidence of this type of thing? And maybe it's our culture. Maybe it's the difference between US sales and, and Australia sales. I think US is far more like quota driven. And if you don't perform, you're gone. Mm -hmm. Where Australia, we're probably a little bit more like, yeah, you missed your target three months in a row, but that's cool. Like, just keep trying. You know, like that's, it could be a little bit of a different mindset sort of thing. But what's your comments on that, Josh? Is it Were you still aware the of that, Josh? Well, yeah, actually, so my only real knowledge before meeting you guys of Australia was uh, Foster's Beer and, uh, <laughs> and Crocodile Dundee. Yeah, so um, nothing to do with Australia at all. So nothing to do with Australia at all. <laughs> no, uh, here's, here's what I know in my limited knowledge on American business. It's really, it really, it's not even Western at this point, it's American. Mm. Americans are very cutthroat in many instances when it comes to sales and business. Mm. It's, uh, if you know what a PIP is, right? Performance mm. plan. 
mm-hmm. you're giving up improvement hit plan when, yeah yeah when you when you don't when you don't hit your goals over a certain amount of time you get put on a pip and really what salespeople know is this is just the beginning of the end i'm just That's giving purgatory. myself yeah i'm giving <laughs> my the, the, basically you're you're fulfilling hr's guidelines to fire you here at some point and okay. and in the united states it really is that way by the way and so could we say that our culture in general has created sales organizations that push their salespeople to a point where they have to salespeople have to scrape and claw to get business you, mm-hmm. you could say that um, but I think that there's a huge difference between for instance Australia and the United States in that regard but I, I still know this a bottom line is a bottom line in business mm-hmm. a PL a profit and loss statement is a profit and loss statement in the US and Australia in Germany and yeah. Asia in Africa, it doesn't matter. The PL is a PL. And if a salesperson's been brought in to handle one eighth of the profit side, the revenue generating side, and they bring in one sixteenth, then there's going to be issues, right? If they don't mm. hit that one eighth. And mm. so that's the same in any culture. Now, is there a bigger lag time or lead time dependent upon whether you're in the United States or not? There's there possibly. Definitely. Um, so I think that there could be differences, but but the question again, Steve was, um, is the is the does the word does the consumer play in all this, and what what is their, I guess, what part do they play in in regard to um, whether or not they're going to be allowed to be duped? I think is what the ultimate question was, and and here's what I'll say. Think about, I think about what we do as salespeople. Not even talking training right now. Talk about salespeople. As salespeople, I really do, and, and don't laugh because it's, it's, I, I think this is true. I really see us as very similar to teachers in school. Oh, 100%. So if that's the case, think about kids in school. If, let's say we're, let's say we're in algebra, you're, a, you're an eighth grader in the United States, and usually eighth graders, seventh, eighth graders take algebra. The kid only knows as much as the teacher is willing to teach them or able to teach them at that point. Now, can they get some of that information elsewhere? Sure. You have great websites like Khan Academy. You can go online and find algebra things. You can, you can do different things to teach yourself. And a lot of them do, right? A lot of kids think they know everything. And then they get in class with the teacher. And the teacher is able to mold them and show them what's important and show them how to do algebra so they can pass the test. Right. That's mm. and so they can learn algebra and they can have it as something as that's part of their life for the rest of their lives. They know how to do this kind of equation. In sales, think of think of someone who is selling think of someone who's selling real estate now. Let's go to a realtor. Is there really any difference between that realtor and his client who's shopping for a house as opposed to the teacher who's teaching his kids algebra? To me, there's really not. Does the kid have responsibility on them to learn algebra? Yes, they do. Does the person buying the house have a responsibility to be as informed as possible to make sure they're not duped? Yes, mm. but ultimate responsibility for the kid teach, learning algebra should fall on the teacher, ultimate. So if the kid fails, we can blame the kid for not trying as hard. 
we can blame the kid for not studying as much. But in the end, if my job is to take is to take the kid from a lack of knowledge on algebra to understanding algebra, and the kid does not get to understanding algebra, then there is a failure on my part as the teacher. Obviously, mm. there are other factors that play into it. But ultimate responsibility, going back to personal responsibility, mm. falls on the person who has the most knowledge. And mm. in the sales process, if you're a realtor teaching that person how to buy a house, or if you're a, someone selling cars and you're teaching that person the right way to do it, if you're selling sales training, our ultimate job is to teach them enough to make the right decision in terms of what they buy. That's mm. where the morality for me comes in because we are the teacher. If that algebra teacher wants to teach someone a hack to get through a test and it causes them to be bad at algebra two or geometry or trigonometry or calculus later on, that's a failure on the, on the teacher's part. Yes, mm. there's some personal responsibility from the side of the student, but the ultimate responsibility should come from the person who has the most knowledge. And in that regard, in terms of the sales process, the salesperson should always have more knowledge than the person they're selling to. Mm. And if they don't, then that person who is buying probably should find a different salesperson, mm. right? Because otherwise, why do they need them? Mm. So I, I, I see what you're saying, Steve, and I, and I partially agree. But I think where that line comes again is, as a salesperson, my ultimate, I have, I'm going to take personal responsibility for the people that I am guiding to a sale. And mm. that means it's on me. That's where sales is hard because we are pushed to make a sale. And so what happens if we're at the end of a quarter and I'm below quota and I have this guy who wants to buy something and I know in my heart of hearts, this is a mistake for him to buy. This is detrimental to his family or to his business or to what have you. And I'm presented with a moral dilemma, a, a, a moral crossroads. Mm. Do I sell him something that I know full well he does not need? When mm. I know that if I say no to him, I'm not gonna buy, he's going to go buy it from someone else. Or do I sell it, make my quota, and then have to live with myself when I see in the, in the papers in six months that this guy went out of business? And so mm. I think that this is where career salespeople, professional salespeople, can differentiate themselves, right, from the, the hacks out there that give us all a bad name. I'm willing mm. to lose in order to help that person win ultimately because that makes me a better salesperson. And by the way, if I do that, chances are I'm going to get referrals out the freaking butthole, right? Mm. And so, again, I, I believe in personal responsibility. And every time I buy, I do the same thing, right? So maybe that's <laughs> that, that's a little bit contradictory, but personal responsibility from the salesperson should always be first front and center. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I like that. I think, I think, I think the salesperson, I think the salesperson does have responsibility over, overall. It's a, it's a bit of a, it's a bit of a two way street, but it, they, they certainly, they certainly do. I just think it's good when you hear people like yourself, Josh, put both into context like you said because here's what i here's what i hate we're going to talk about things i'm hating at the moment i am hating yeah. full-blown virtue signaling where you can quickly see straight underneath that that they don't actually believe anything they're saying it's just topical it's kind of relevant and it kind of makes them look good 
which further seeds back into their own drive to be a good person in the views of other people. I hate that shit. Like, if you're a salesperson right now and you're just saying, all I care about is the customer and nothing but the customer and I want their life to be better, that is bull crap. You also want to take home a paycheck and that is perfectly fine because you can do mm. both simultaneously. That's right. And I think what's happening is we've gone the pendulum swing of make bulk coin, bank checks, be successful, drive Lambos, fly private jets, like be baller. Now we're swinging all the way to the other side of like, be a good human, but we want to land somewhere in the middle. Like that's how it's good and it's good for you and it's good for others is when you can be a good person, you can help a lot of people, but you can also be highly profitable. Um, are you seeing this too, Josh? Or is it just me outside looking on the LinkedIn train? We're having a chat with, having a chat with Scott Barker the other day and we're like, you know, we've all become content marketers for LinkedIn, but it's all this weird sort of like <laughs> virtue sig- signaling, like pats on backs. Like I love when I see someone disagreeing with someone in the feed. I'm oh, like, yes, so a real weird. conversation. Like what happens so in real life? basically you like to read me trolling people and, and saying, you know what? I slightly disagree with you. Yeah, well, I want more of it. I think I think it's I think the it's too much. There's too much virtue signaling, uh, particularly in even in sales right now. Like you oh, gotta you gotta be somewhere in the middle. It's sickening. Yeah, it's sickening. And so it's funny. I uh, I don't mind it if it's real. Of course, I don't mind someone getting up there and saying, "I totally just sold this guy," you know, a four hundred thousand dollar deal. Now I don't like that guy. But I have respect for someone who's willing to come out and tell the truth, right? So again, I don't want to ever do business with someone who totally rips someone off. But if you go, ha, this guy only needed about forty grand of, of product and I sold him four hundred thousand, boom, yeah. commission check, yeah. getting my Lambo, right? Hey, more power to you, man. You're being honest and you're telling people exactly who you are. And if someone goes and does business with you, more power to you. I don't like. You're right. What we know right right now on a LinkedIn or social media is that niceness is starting to sell. Mm. And to me, that's what's scary. Um, mm. I, uh, because I, it's kind of like the, the conversation we're having in the United States about, about um, racism. Mm. You know, we have the, the race riots and people, um, you know, who are starting to feel like they have a voice now and they're able to stand up and it's fantastic with the Black Lives Matter move or Black Lives Matter movement and, and and those sort of things. But it seems it seems to me like we have a lot of people who are tagging on to stuff like that in order to look good, mm. in order to say, you know what, I'm part of that. And and, and basically what it is is I'm gonna make a post that gets a, a thousand likes and that gets all these views. And I know that if I just say this, then I, I'm gonna go, I'm gonna trend more. And that's a dangerous part of society. Mm. And luckily, for me at least, we've been around long enough on those platforms like a LinkedIn. I can go back and see, you know, if someone's full of shit. Mm. I can say, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. You say you're all about people, but I saw you over here talking about closing someone's ass off and, and doing whatever it took to get the sale. And now you're talking about being, you know, virtuistic and, and all you care about is taking care of other people. We have we have a, a system right now of checks and balances because of history on social media that I think you haven't ever had before. So on one hand, I hate it, but two, dude, I I want to know who I can't trust. Mm. And if I saw mm. that six months ago, you were posting about how many people you you totally like sleezed over to get your sale, and now you're talking about how virtuous you are. 
unless you mm. told me about some life-changing event that changed your mind about everything, I know you're full of shit. Mm. And I think that's the great thing about some of these things. We can, we can typically speaking pretty quickly nowadays vet that out. And so, yeah, mm. they may be getting a lot of stuff right now, but, but uh, we know that here pretty soon they're going to be struggling because the pendulum is going to swing the other way. And next year it could be that being an asshole is totally in and I'm screwed. So what's Matt? There there was a smirk Uh, there. There was a Matt comment coming and I'm keen. I was just thinking about like, um, I don't know if you guys saw those uh, screenshots and pictures of, uh, you know, in June, you've got Pride Month Mm -hmm. and you can go on. Is that Gay Pride Month? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, And so you can go on like every big company's like Facebook, Instagram profile and they'll all have the little like rainbow flag like, mm-hmm. you know, uh, Xbox, IBM, Coca-Cola, all of them, they'll all change their picture to that rainbow flag. July 1st, it's back to normal. Logo. It's gone. <laughs> it's gone. <laughs> and it's not on their website at all. Yeah. Mm. Um, it's true. Yeah. And, so uh, what, do you, I mean, what do you make of that, Matt? That just, that just makes me think it's like it's totally transparent. It's just virtue signaling, as Steve was saying. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like they don't actually care about these issues. They, and um, and even better, like they only uh, do that marketing in countries where it's acceptable, because mm. you won't see the uh, the the Facebook, um, not Facebook. Hang on, who am I going to use as an example? Uh, what's a Google, What's a big company? Google, Coke. Microsoft, IBM, Coca-Cola. Coca-Cola. Uh, okay, Coca-Cola. Apple. You won't see uh, the Coca-Cola Facebook page in Saudi Arabia change to the gay pride flag no, or no, Russia or <laughs> any of those countries. So. The company doesn't actually believe in it. They don't care. It's just wherever it's socially acceptable to like boost their public image. Mm. Mm. But that is a genuine discussion around the world at the moment that, you know, there is a bunch of companies, even a bunch of places, a bunch of nations where it appears to be a rotten apple. It's shiny on the outside. It's looking really good. But as soon as you cut into it, it's full of worms. It's moldy. It's crumbly inside. And I think... Uh, I, I'm super interested to see what happens like in the next, like doing a podcast August next year, what's the mm. state of the world in? Because I, I'm just sensing that we, we haven't even started the hard, hard yards yet of this, of this economic recession, of these challenging environments. Like we, I don't think we've hit, we, we're nowhere near hitting the worst of it, I, mm. I believe. What, is the, what does the apples look like? with another six to 12 months of this, another two years of this, another three years of this, you know, that's, I think a lot of truth is going to surface and I think it's going to be ugly. Wait Mm. until after the November election in the United States. Yeah. Yeah. I wanted to talk to you about this, Josh. Yeah. Mate. Go on. Let's do it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. What what are your thoughts? What's, what's going to happen? Oh, you're about to get me like trolled for the rest of my freaking life. Okay. Let me, let me preface (laughs) this by saying this. I have, a, I have a good friend who uh, his dad is a U.S. congressman. In, in, I went to school in a little place called Round, round Rock, Texas. It is actually named after a big round rock that's in the middle of a river <laughs> in the city, right? So, um, and he was the county judge when I was going to school, and then he was elected to the Senate. And so he may be the only politician I actually like. I, uh, I, for the most part, um, I, uh, I've decided, I, I came to a point where I've stayed out of politics, but here's what I do know. And so if my, my whole feeling on this election coming up. Will you vote? 
Yes. Yeah. I will. I I believe that from a standpoint of of what I've been given by living in the United States, there's a lot of there's a lot of bad things about what's going on here. But one of the great things that we've had for the longest time, especially me, right, as a white man, I've had the ability to 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 vote. And I have the ability to have my voice heard. And I don't want to take that for granted because I know a lot of people out there, people that we know on LinkedIn and places who don't really have the ability to do that. Mm. So to me, that's, that is a blessing that I have, and I'm not going to shirk that responsibility. But who am I going to vote for? I will not vote for either of the top two candidates. Mm-hmm. Just not going to. Uh, and I won't get super deep into either, either one of them. But I tend to look at political candidates from, from this standpoint. One, I don't trust politicians in general anyway. I think that most of that is, is virtue chasing like we were just talking about. Let me say and come out and be – one of them says, I'm totally for, for, for gay rights, right? And the other one goes, I'm for gayer rights. Mm. Oh, yeah, I care mm. more. Oh, I care more than you. Oh, yeah, well, look at my flag shirt. Oh, yeah, well, my whole outfit is <laughs> – they, they, it's, it's about one-upping on someone on the latest trend. Mm. I, 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 I guarantee you that both of Trump and Biden, the Republican and Democrat that, will be, that are running, um, will be going back and forth to see which one can one-up on the latest social trend. That's what will happen, so I don't trust any of them. But what I do know is this. I look at all of those from that standpoint then, and I say, one, who would I trust with my family? Mm. Would I trust either of them alone in a room with my family? Two, who is the person, if I'm gone, that is going to ensure that my kids have the freedom of choice, the freedom of expression, freedom of religion, the ability to make um, a handsome life for themselves? Who is the person who will best get my kids to be that point? And lastly, who will be the person, is there anybody who will take away their freedom to to believe in the God that they want to believe in. Mm. And when I look at all of those things right now, I can't vote for either of them because mm. I don't trust either of them. So I'm going to mm. be voting for some third-party candidate more than likely, and there's going to be people on both sides of that political aisle who will tell me that I'm throwing my vote away and that I'm only helping to elect Trump or I'm only helping to elect Joe Biden. I don't care what they say. I'm going to vote mm. my conscience. I'm going to vote the way that I can look back and tell my kids and be and feel proud of the way that I acted <clears throat> and the way that I represented our family during that time. And that's what I'm going to do. So yeah, it's, I'll say this, what happens in every U.S. election, just about, economy goes up and then it starts to flatten out. So you're going to see right now, I think yesterday or today, our stock market basically hit a point where all of the losses we had from coronavirus have now been wiped away, the losses from a stock market perspective, which is insane to me because we still have like a you know 15 16 18 percent unemployment rate which doesn't make any sense to me you're going to see it even out and then when you get to november after that election that's when you're going to see how bad this economy is Mm. you really are because the economy is going to be propped up with this idea that a change could happen or that the one candidate will be better next time and then when they realize none of that's going to change you're going to see more coronavirus cases hit because oh. I don't think we're done with this around the world at all. 
I think all of a sudden you're going to see, you know, businesses in the United States who have barely been hanging on now follow to the side. They're saying that that I was hearing something the other day that there's going to be potentially like 30 percent of small businesses in the United States will go under, will Mm -hmm. declare bankruptcy. Mm -hmm. It's amazing considering the fact that that's extraordinary, Josh. And and also the, the thing that makes it even more extraordinary is that small businesses. So if you look at small business under two, three million dollars in total revenue make up like 90% of businesses in the United States. It's huge. So think about that. 30% of the 90% of all businesses will be gone. Mm. And so what does that do? It, 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 you talk about a dearth, like this big valley between the apples and the Googles of the world and the mom Mm. and pop shops barely hanging on, you know, with one Mm. or two employees. You're going to see that that middle class of business completely wiped away because of this this pandemic. Mm. Who do you think wins, Josh? Um, people are going to hate me saying this. I, I think Trump's going to win again. Mm. What's your thoughts there? I, here's and here's why. At this time in 2016, Hillary Clinton was up by quite a bit. In the United States, the Democrat Party really relies on two different sectors to vote for them, younger and then a lot older. So the elderly and our you know, retired individuals and then younger people. Younger people don't get out and vote. They just don't. Mm. And, and, mm. and historically, they haven't gotten out and vote. Mm. Um, during the Obama administration, uh, President Obama really united minorities. And they came out and voted in droves because he, he was the first black candidate for the, United, for the president of the United States. Mm. And so they were going to vote. For, you haven't seen that same resolve to vote for a Hillary Clinton. Mm. And I don't think you're going to see the same for a Joe Biden. And so That's, then all of a sudden, everybody really being, poll- everyone being mm. polled saying, oh, Joe Biden looks like he's up by 10, 15 points. How much of that 10, 15 points are made up by people who aren't going to get out and vote? And so then mm, I think you're going to have yeah. you're going to have the rural areas are going to end up voting for Trump because in the United States a lot of the rural areas tend to be more conservative. Mm. You're going to have um, a lot of people still for some reason trust Donald Trump more on the economy. And so right now I think that this is exactly where it was in 2016. Interesting. And yes, there's a lot more information now on the current president that maybe people can you know make a a change, but in the United States, the, back in 1980, when Ronald Reagan became president, um, I mean, he won, it was a landslide. And then in 84, and he beat Walter Mondale, is even more, he won like 48 of the 50 states. You're never going to see that again because the country is so entrenched into their beliefs, right? Mm-hmm. So you have, you know, 48% on one side and 48% on the other, and you've got this like four or five percentage points that could sway one way or the other. And so whenever you have that, you know, a, a pandemic that keeps people home from voting, um, you know, a, a pandemic that keeps the elderly from getting out and feeling like they're comfortable to vote, or they don't feel like their vote's going to be counted because it's a mail-in. All these mm-hmm. things matter. So it's going to be a lot closer than people think. And I just, I think in the end he's going to win. But if I look at this from a negative to politician standpoint, I don't think it really matters. 
mm. a whole, I mean, maybe in terms of people being upset, you know, people feeling better that they've gotten someone out. But in the end, what is the new president going to do about 30% of all small businesses going completely under? Mm. I mean, how is, how is a new president going to stop that? How's a new president going to stop spending where we're now, uh, you talk about the debt that the United States have right now. How, mm. how's it, what's the new U.S. president going to do about that? So I think there's a lot of things that the United States right now is struggling with, and I'm not sure there are many of them that, that the president has a whole lot of uh, ability to change. So, mm. you know, all we have to do is go out there and continue showing people the right way to grow their businesses. The best, the best yes. thing that any American yeah. business can do right now is learn how to grow it in a time where people are, are contracting and then yes. you know, hopefully protect yourself a little bit when there is another downturn. One of the biggest impacts it could have could be the you know, 24 hours after the announcement is made. You know, the, the, who knows what could happen in terms of people's reaction to that, either way it goes. It could mm. be apocalypse, right? <laughs> mm. Could be. It could be. We're a weird world, man. Who would have thought it? Eh? Like such a such a crazy year to get into, and then it's just yeah. You know, like I said, we feel like we're only just getting really started, despite it being months and months. You know, so yeah. Twenty twenty one, I reckon, is going to be the real test for people. And all I can say is, get your community tight. I think I think it's never been more important to have good friends, good people around you. Um. Like that's what's going to get us through it, man. I think yeah. I think that's the only way you can do it because I think it it's damaging to think too big because it's almost like a problem so large that it's like no it seems like no human is capable of solving it. So like, <laughs> you know, all you can then do is all right, how do I positively impact my inner circle and make sure I'm like taking care of my family and taking care of the closest people to me. If everyone did that and everyone sought out a, a tight little community and everyone took care of each other, you know. The law of numbers should hopefully help. So that's uh, that's President Steve with his message to the people. <laughs> I, I'm voting. I'm voting for you, yeah, <laughs> Josh. We uh, we like to ask two questions at the end of every podcast. I'm sure you have heard them already. I'm sure you've already perhaps got some answers in mind. Hit it with the first one, Steve. First golden question is this: What is something you've come to know and believe to be true that you know a bunch of other people simply disagree with? I believe that each of us on, on the face of the earth, we all have this innate desire to be around as many people as possible who are teachers and educators. And people don't believe that. People believe that we need, people want um, accolades and people want backslaps and people want um, encouragers. And I think those are all important. But in the end, I really do believe that people feel empty when they're not growing. Mm. I, th I feel that people, think about the, the most depressed people that I've known in my life, at the times that I've been most depressed. And I felt like I was stagnant. Mm. I felt like I w there, was, there was no hope of me moving up or even down. I'm just stuck. And so I think that I've learned over my 44 years that if there's one thing that everyone really wants, they want answers, they want to be taught, they want to be educated, they want to feel as though there's a better future coming up. They want to feel mm. like they're not going to be stuck in this rut for the rest of their life. 
And so to me, that's one thing that I've learned. And I've, I've told people before, and I've never heard anyone give me an argument that changes my mind on that. Mm, love it. Second that's question, awesome, Josh. Man. Yeah, I like that. Second question is, what is something you currently hold and believe to be true, but that you sense yourself starting to let go of? So I've been thinking about this question, by the way. Um, it's funny. I, uh, I've always been, I think I told you at the very beginning of this, this half glass, this glass half full kind of guy. And I, I go into situations and go into trainings and go into presentations or meetings with parents of my kids. And I always leave being shocked at how big of an asshole most of the other people are. Mm -hmm. And I was asking myself, I asked myself this and it kind of came to me like, why is it that I, I'm always, this always happens. And I started thinking about what I teach my, my students in, in the cells rebellion. And it's this idea that by the way, expectations kill, right? I mean, think about your marriages, think about relationships. The minute you start having, expectations on someone, you're bound to be discouraged and defeated. And I've had this expectation that inherently, regardless of, by the way, what I know to be true from what God says in the Bible, that people for the most part are not going to screw you over. People are good. People are, are going to eventually select and do the right thing. People don't need to be taught and spurred to want goodness, that eventually people will come to a point where they say, you know what, I need to be better. And I'm getting to this point where I still believe it, but whether it's the current political climate or it's the social unrest, not just in the United States, all over the world, seeing people say things. I saw someone today on LinkedIn post something that I said, oh my gosh, are we like in 1955 Mississippi? It's unbelievable. And so what it's really making me believe more and more is that men and women may want to be better and want to be good and cling for change, but inherently people have no freaking clue how to get there. And people have almost lost the lack of desire to be better. And so they need people like us to help with that. I, I was always of the opinion that we could come in and move people to where they wanted to go to begin with and where they were already heading. I don't think people head that way. I think mm. for the most part left to their own volition. And I should know this, by the way, because again, I became a Christian at 19, so I didn't grow up in church. I'm not that guy that, that carries around a Bible everywhere and is preaching on the side corner or what have you. I'll throw down a fuck or a shit every once in a while and I'll go out and have a drink, right? I, that's not me, but I believe in Jesus Christ and I believe in what the Bible says. And the Bible has told us for the longest time that the reason that Jesus was needed is that people are inherently not good mm. and that they needed a savior. And yet I've always had this notion that, yeah, but, but people will choose good. But I'm seeing right now that the, that the world needs more people like the people on this podcast right now. The world needs more Darcy and Steve, right? The, the world needs more Dale Dupree. The world needs more people who are willing to go and pull people out from those dark places, from those places that they're headed, that they're willingly heading to. 
Mm-hmm. And they need people to slap them in the face and say, what the hell is wrong with you? This is the way to go. Let's go. Mm-hmm. I'm going to teach you how to do it. I'm going to train you how to get there. And uh, for a while, I've been a little, I was a little depressed about this, but I've gotten to a point now where that also tells me why I'm here. Mm. So it's all coming into full circle, right? And like, okay, I understand now why I have such a passion for sales, why I have such a passion for empathy and morality and doing the right thing and mm. understanding that I'm not, I'm not the sum of my past mistakes, but I need someone to hold my hand and walk me that way, just like everyone else does. And so I'm on earth right now to teach people how to be better people, how to build legacies. And that just happens to be within the industry of sales. Mm, and so that it. would be my answer to that. That's well so said, man. I love that. Well wrapped up. Perfectly said, mate. We, uh, we want to send you a massive thank you, Josh, for joining us. Uh, we know we cut into your dinner time. Uh, hey, I'm still eating it. It's all right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> man. It's been an absolute pleasure. I think that uh, one day soon we need to have like a a major sales rebellion podcast where we get a whole group of them on, That'd catch up fun. with them, and see how they're all doing. But man, fun. we we thank you massively. Best place to hang out with you, Josh. Connect on LinkedIn. I'm LinkedIn. Assuming. Yeah, LinkedIn. I don't even know what my. Let's see. What is my my? We'll put it in profile. the show notes. You put it in there. Yeah, it's in LinkedIn's the best way to get a hold of me. You can find me through the Sales Rebellion also. Just uh, Google Sales Rebellion or go to the LinkedIn and look it up. If you do find me there, tell me that you found, tell you what, tell me that you heard me on this podcast and I'll give you a, a free coaching session. There, there we go. go. Hey. Now we're talking. Now, now, now I feel like we got some like sponsorship. Like, Our first ever sponsor. Like, there we go. Yeah, yeah. Next we'll be giving away <laughs> swag and t-shirts and all sorts of stuff. That's it. That's man, good. thank you so much for joining us, man. We'll, uh, we'll catch up with you again soon. It's been a great Absolutely, chat. Absolutely, guys. It's good time. to talk to you. Real quick, uh, super exciting news. The oh. Pursuit oh. of, like this is episode 50 now, Pursuit of Love is now going onto YouTube. We've hey. made, um, we've made like a specific channel for it now. So that's where you're going to find every episode from now on, like in terms of the video form. Awesome. Yeah. Brilliant. Thanks, Matt. So just look at the Pursuit. Can you send me that link? Yep, yeah. I'll put the link. I'll put the link, um, like in the show notes. Uh, I wish I could say it's going to be like forward okay. slash pursuit of love, but you can't do that on YouTube until you have got a hundred subscribers. Yeah, so um, subscribe to our YouTube channel. Yeah, if everyone that. who listened to the podcast went and subscribed, we'd be able to do that straight away. So, yeah, so if you want to do that, that's great. <laughs> so if you're listening to this point and you're like, yeah, I dig what the pursuit of love is about, go to YouTube and search the pursuit of love, and then give that thing a subscribe button so we can get our cheeky little URL. Yeah, and we've made it. We've made it. <laughs> you need to throw it to Dale Dupree and tell him to make a post and you'll have That's about a thousand true. subscribers yeah, in an hour. There it is. Dale, <laughs> you just want to do that for us, man? Thank you. That'd be great. Cheers. <laughs> now, thanks for joining us, Josh. Really appreciate your time, man. And uh, really love all the stuff that you stand for and Absolutely, what you're about. Guys. So enjoy. Uh, well, I'm looking forward. I know that I know that we probably are going to be doing some stuff together in the future. I'm looking forward to seeing you guys again. So yeah. uh, hopefully you guys can get back out to the state soon. Likewise. Awesome, yeah. Man. Same. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you. All right, guys. Y'all be safe.